with you here on Becoming Fully Alive. We are working through the Gospel of Matthew, and in this week we have been working through Matthew chapters 8 through 13. And one thing that keeps coming up for me in Matthew's Gospel every time I read and reread um, the chapters and the whole of Matthew's writing is just how rich and full, how descriptive Matthew is about Jesus' parables, all that Jesus is saying and doing and inviting his followers to. And it's hard, you know, when I read the Gospels today, so often it feels like we've gotten Jesus wrong far more often than we have received what Jesus really has in store for us. You know, I read in Matthew chapter 13 where Jesus is talking about why he speaks in parables. Jesus says in Matthew's gospel, I speak to them in parables because seeing they do not see and hearing they neither hear nor understand. And continuing in 13, 14, and in them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah when he says, With your hearing you will hear and in no way understand, and in seeing you will see and in no way perceive. For this people's heart has grown crass. They have listened with their ears grudgingly, and they have closed their eyes, so that it may never happen that they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with the heart and turn back, and I shall heal them. And as Jesus continues after quoting Isaiah, But blissful are your eyes, because they see, and your ears, because they hear. This perception that Jesus speaks about, that seeing they do not see, hearing they do not hear, it has everything to do with the transformation of heart that we hear so often repeated in Matthew's gospel. It is from the heart, says Jesus, that we perceive. And something that's become increasingly clear to me, both in a lot of reading that I've done, but a whole lot more of self-investigation, which is the recognition that it is experience plus expectation that equals perception. Perception is experience plus expectation. And the challenge there is that we don't always have a whole lot of control over our experiences. Much comes to us from outside of us, whether it's from the wider culture, from our own family of origin, from just our day-to-day lives, whatever that might look like. And through those experiences, we come to set expectations on the world, on others. And those expectations are often things that have been placed on us, whether we wanted them or not. And that is what gives us the way of our perceiving. And this way of perceiving that 
has been shaped in us, that has been shaped by us through the whole, the totality of our experiences and what we have grown to expect from the world and others. It's how we move about the world. It is our, well, it is the way that we construct our world. I think it was Meister Eckhart who said sometime in the 14th or 15th century that there is no being except in a mode of being, that there is no life except in the way we live our lives. And this connection between mode of being, this being who we are, and perception, they're, they're so bound up together. They are inseparable. Oftentimes we think that, well, the way that I see the world is just how it is, but I don't often do the hard work of going and actually exploring. So, well, why do I see it that way? Is there something more than just what is right there in front of me? Is there something more than the person's behavior in front of me that is compelling me, eliciting from me the experience that I'm having? We often think that we're just experiencing reality. We're experiencing what is. Yet in reality, what is actually happening is the person, the behavior, the circumstance, the event outside of me is happening and there's something else happening inside of me and what's happening in my perception and my making of the world, my mode of being, those two things are entering into relationship, the world within me and the world outside of me. And when those two things collide, when they interact, that's what I'm actually perceiving. And all of this flows out of my heart. All of this flows out of how our hearts are being formed daily by our experiences and expectations. And so this gospel encouragement to have our hearts transformed is completely, it has everything to do with our ability, our capacity to truly relate to what is outside of us so that we do not misperceive, so that we do not mistake what is outside of us as something foreign or threatening or harmful, but seeing from the place hearing from the place, perceiving from the place of a transformed heart, I can relate to what is outside of me not in a way that becomes defensive or confrontational necessarily, but I can relate to it. I can relate to the person, circumstance, or event in such a way that leads toward our mutual transformation. You know, so often we think of Jesus' parables, um, Jesus' teachings as moralistic imperatives. And, and I love in his commentary on the parables, 
Thomas Keating says that the parables are not moralistic, they are earth-shattering. When we keep these parables, when we keep the teachings of Jesus, when we keep the life of Jesus in the neat and tidy category of something that's moralistic, that's teaching us how to improve our behavior or tweak our behavior, we lose the revolutionary aspect of who Jesus is. These parables don't simply invite us to say something in a kinder way, although that's helpful. They invite us to overturn our lives and get with the program. They invite us to investigate and explore every nook and cranny of who we are so that we can become fully who God is calling us to be. And so much of the time we, we treat the teachings of Jesus, we treat the parables of Jesus as, as a pretty heady affair. I know I am incredibly guilty about this. But the parables of Jesus, as Ulrich Lutz invites us to consider, the parables of Jesus, they ask, us, they ask to be lived, not to be grasped by our intellect. They ask, as Jesus articulates quite clearly, quoting from the prophecy of Isaiah, they ask to be heard and to be seen from the place of a transformed heart. And so often we're simply closed. We're closed because we too, like the Pharisees and Sadducees of Jesus' day, our, our lives, we feel threatened by what Jesus is up to in the gospel. He's overturning every single aspect of an elitist, of an authoritarian, of a top-down organized culture and community. And Jesus is distributing the gospel, distributing power to anyone who would follow after him. We have in this section of Matthew's gospel right there in chapter 10, the sending out of the 70, the Great Commission. And one of the things that we learn quite clearly from Jesus is that Jesus doesn't need to go himself to every single village and home in order for people to receive the healing, to receive the good news. Rather, Jesus distributes this power to his apostles distributes his power to those who would follow in his way so that it's not it's not consolidated into a single source or to one small group of people but that it gets distributed to everybody everybody has access to the healing grace of Jesus everybody can be an agent of grace. And if there's anything that Jesus is working to do that is really pushing up against the power and authority of the temple of Jesus' day, it is the distribution of power, the distribution of grace, so that there is never a centralization to who can administer, how it gets administered, 
Rather, grace is given freely and it is to be received as a free gift. In sending out the disciples, Jesus says, Go to the lost sheep of the household of Israel. Preach as you go along, saying that the kingdom of the heavens has drawn near. And there in 10 verse 8, Heal the ailing, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, exercise demons. You have received a free gift. Give a free gift. You have received a free gift. Give a free gift. That to me seems to be one of the greatest gospel imperatives that so often gets overlooked. We're so often trying to figure out how to monetize everything. We're trying to figure out how to distribute power and authority in this archaic top-down mode when Jesus is constantly saying this is free the kingdom is for everyone give at will so that people can receive as they are ready and I think this is why Thomas Keating is so quick to point out that Jesus's teachings are earth-shattering Because Jesus is sending out his disciples to heal, to raise the dead, to cleanse lepers, to exercise demons. These are all relational matters that have to do with people that none of the clerical elite of Jesus' day want to have anything to do with. Nobody wants to touch or go near these persons for fear that they too might contract the disease, that they too might be possessed by the demons. And yet Jesus says, these are the people to whom you must go, not to the people who are well, but to the people who are in need of healing. The challenge that Jesus' teaching continues to pose to all of us is You know, if I go into a room for an ordinary gathering, maybe it's a cocktail party, maybe it's just a a fundraiser, maybe it's just a, a fun night of fellowship, just like everybody else, I have a tendency to gravitate toward the people in the room that I already know, the people that I am comfortable being around, being with, the people with whom I'm not necessarily going to have to carry the conversation. We all know the people in the room who are going to tell us about their most recent ailment, or they're going to rehearse that experience that they had several months ago, several years ago, that completely ruined their life. And there's always that person in the room at least in rooms that I sometimes find myself in, uh, there's always that person in the room who always asks the very same question that they've asked thousands of times before. And it's, it's a challenge. It's a challenge for me, if I'm really owning it, to go toward those persons 
go towards those persons who are ailing, who are hurting, who are not always the best conversationalist, and be with them, be present with them. And yet what Jesus invites his followers to do, what Jesus invites all of us to do, is to go to the people who seem like they need somebody to be with them, whether we want to be with them or not. Donna Shaper tells the story about getting invited to the home of Georgia O'Keeffe and being elated that she would get to go have dinner and be amidst the intellectuals of society uh, in the mountains of New Mexico. And as she was getting ready to leave her home to go have dinner in Georgia's home, she got a knock at the door. And someone came in and began sobbing and telling, telling her all the challenging moments she was having right then and there, how her whole life was falling apart. And, and Donna says that she, she wanted to want to be with this woman, but she really wanted to go to Georgia O'Keeffe's home and have dinner. And she reflects back on this and she says, you know, this is the kind of work that Jesus did. Jesus always wanted to be with the guy that was hurting, with the woman that was hurting. Jesus could care less about being at the social elite party. And as Shaper says, given that I'm a minister and all, I should be glad to be like Jesus, right? To which she replies to her own question, I'm not. <laughs> I know what the gospel is, says Shaper. I've never been sure I could follow it. And what Shaper points out in, in her amusing way is that, you know, Jesus is constantly sending us to and sending people to us who need us and who are not going to help us move up the food chain in, of social status, but they are people who need us to be Jesus to them. The gospel writes Stanley Hirewas is known by one person being for another person the story of Christ. The gospel is known by one person being for another person the story of Christ. Too often, I think, we get hung up like everybody else in separating the gospel out from our day-to-day lives, so much so that we don't necessarily even notice those around us who are hurting, who are lonely, who may just need an encouraging word. And it's up to us to look deep within and ask ourselves, what is the hurt in me that's avoiding the hurt in that other person? What's the hurt in me that's avoiding the hurt in that other person? Mm. 
I've been sitting with that and other questions like it for some time now. Because one of the things that I've become more aware of and more attentive to is that the thing in that other person that triggers me, that causes my skin to curl just a little, it means there's something in me that needs to be addressed that's tuned in to that frequency. Thomas Keating writes that the divine light attacks whatever is resistant in us. The divine light attacks whatever is resistant in us. You know, when I notice, become aware of the thing that's causing that reactivity to rise in me from what I'm experiencing in the other person, what I've begun to recognize is that this is the divine light revealing something in me, attacking something in me that's resistant, resistant to change, resistant to being addressed, resistant to the light, something that wants to stay in the shadows, something that wants to remain hidden from my perception, something that's keeping my heart from its transformation. And yet these encounters, these persons in my life, are gifts from God, as challenging as they might be sometimes. They are gifts of God. We are all gifts of God to help illumine what in us needs transformation, what in us needs to be touched, encircled by, caressed, transformed by the light of God. And if there is a kind of strand or thread that seems to be flowing, woven through these chapters in Matthew's Gospel, chapters 8 through 13, it seems to be the thread of humble receptivity to unconditional love. Humble receptivity to unconditional love. What does that really mean? What we find Jesus describing here in this section in Matthew's Gospel, the picture that is continually painted throughout our New Testament and through much of the Old Testament, is that God's kingdom is all about receiving grace and unconditional love through Christ. The challenge is, is that we so often put conditions on this unconditional love. We fail, like the workers in the vineyard, to receive God's grace as a gift, as the gift that makes our aliveness possible. We, we lose our lives instead of finding them because we're constantly trying to figure it out. We're constantly trying to 
um, fit it into our social conditions of today. And there's, there's something about this that seems to resonate in, in chapter 12, where Jesus is talking about blaspheming the Spirit, a, a very confusing passage in Matthew's Gospel, in Scripture, one that most preachers don't want to touch, and few people know exactly what to do with. And just ask somebody, what does it mean to blaspheme the Holy Spirit? And I suspect you'll get 76 different responses. No one ever quite knew how to explain this to me when I was growing up, but they could sure tell me that whatever it was, you better not do it. What Jesus seems to be really emphasizing when he talks about blaspheming the Spirit is that this unconditional love that Jesus is offering, this this complete abundant grace where forgiveness is extended not 70 times, but 70 times 7, or 77 times, that this perfect forgiveness, this perfect grace, when I deny that this is what is on offer from God, then what I am suggesting is that God's love and forgiveness may be great and powerful, but it's surely not greater than my shortcomings. It's surely not greater than my sin. And so when I suggest, when I claim that someone or something that myself can't be forgiven, can't receive grace, that to me sounds like blasphemy blaspheming the Holy Spirit, because what it does is it idolizes my weakness over God's power. And that self-deception runs rampant in our world, not only in my own life, but in so many that I have encountered along the way. We have a kind of self-righteous pride in what God cannot heal in me. I have a kind of self-righteous pride about what God can and cannot do because surely, surely what I have come out of, what I have experienced, what I have done, surely God can't transform that. And it's my subtle way of controlling God. It's my subtle way of making myself an idol, making a God of myself so that these untouchable places of my life where I don't want anyone to know about, where I don't want God to visit, I can stay in control and hold that over God somehow. And in the end, what I am attempting to do is save my life. And in trying to save it, I miss out on it. I miss out on the aliveness that God wants to make available to me. I miss out on 
the fullness of my humanity that Jesus revealed can take place when I simply let go of all the things that I think are holding me back and I let God in. I let the faith of Christ do its work in me. This is when the fountain of living water begins to gush forth from within. But for this to happen, I first have to recognize just how thirsty I am. The wisdom teacher Sat Prim said that if you are thirsty, the river, the river comes to you. If you are not thirsty, there is no river. If you are thirsty, the river comes to you. If you are not thirsty, there is no river. And what I've begun to really think through in this section in Matthew's Gospel, what I've begun to recognize in my own life, is that the well of life Jesus speaks of to the woman at the well, that well that's ready to gush forth from within, it presents itself when we realize just how thirsty we are for God and when we stop trying to satisfy that, that thirst with what is outside of us. And instead, when we look deep within, when we align ourselves within, when we tap into the truth of our nature as divine beings, as spiritual beings whose inner light is the Christ light that has been there the whole time, when we recognize this and give that our fullest attention, deepening that attentiveness daily, that is when I realize that what can quench my thirst is right there. It's right there in me, right here within the depths of my being. I don't have to keep trying to find it somewhere else. The forgiveness of God, the grace of God, the delight and wonder of God is right here within me. Contact with God is already present. Too often, I'm trying to find God somewhere else. I'm trying to locate God in an event. I'm trying to locate God into some, in some kind of comfort or luxury. And I miss out on just how ordinary experiencing God can be. And the way that we begin to discern this in ourselves, the way that we begin to recognize which well we are drinking from, what our thirst is thirsty for, is, is revealed to us by what comes out of us. Jesus says in Matthew 13, I'm sorry, Matthew 12, uh, verse 34, he says, For the mouth speaks out of what overflows from the heart. The mouth speaks out of what overflows from the heart. 
there is always something spilling over from our lives and it eventually comes out of our mouths. Oftentimes this does harm or damage. And when what is spilling over from our hearts is spilling over from a heart that has been transformed by the grace and forgiveness of the gospel, we will only speak goodness. We will only speak truth. We will only speak from a place of love. It does not mean we will not be angry or upset. Sometimes love demands our anger, and anger can lead to wholeness. Sometimes love means that we have to speak truth to power, speak truthfully to those who can't seem to hear, and to do so in ways that meet people where they are. And it is what comes out of our mouths that can help us to see what our hearts are fully attentive to. Because if our hearts are attending to the grace of God within, if our hearts are attentive to that unconditional love that is always just ever waiting to burst forth like a fountain within us to be that well from which we drink. If, if that is what is overflowing from our hearts, then what comes out of our mouths will reveal this. But our, what flows out of our mouths does reveal something. And, and it's that that we need to start asking questions about. It's what comes out of our mouths. It's our movement, our decisions. We need to be asking ourselves, where is that coming from? Sometimes that's pretty easy to notice. One of the things that I've recognized in my own life is often it's much more complex than I had first imagined. And sometimes it's coming from a place that I never saw coming. I never saw coming. Yet when I can actually discern where it's coming from, how it arrived in my heart in the first place, I can begin to explore, examine what about it needs to be transformed. What about it needs forgiving to be forgiven? What about it needs compassion so that it can be released, so that I can let it go, so that my heart can be truly transformed, so that as I move forward in life, so that I learn to speak anew with the love of Christ, it comes not from a place where my misshapen experiences are contorting how I perceive and make my way in the world. Rather, my perception, organized by my transformed heart, begins to speak from a place that is not distraught or anxious or contorted but from a place that is full and free and lively. And this aliveness comes from our being in alignment with our truest selves. One of the ways that I'm 
appreciating how to kind of describe this, articulate it, is is by way of a frequency. This alignment, this aliveness, it's it's analogous to the radio frequencies that are constantly flowing through this world, through which um, a receiver gets certain information. We're we're not so different. We we tune into certain frequencies based on our mode of being, based on the way we live our lives. And we interpret everything accordingly based on the frequency we are on. And so if, our, if, the, if the stations of our hearts, as it were, are tuned into the channel of Christ and unconditional love, we will continue to hear and receive what we need in order to follow in this way. And if we are out of alignment, if we're tuned into frequencies where that, that unconditional love is scratchy or distorted, then it's going to come out in scratchy, distorted ways. And so there's a continual need for me to align more fully to this way of love, and it only happens through practices, through spiritual practices, practices of forgiveness, practices of grace and receptivity, practices of simply looking at another person and pausing enough, regardless of who they are, where they are from, or what they might be doing, pausing enough to recognize and trust that what God is up to in them is much bigger, much greater than whatever I may be perceiving in them right now. And if I can open myself to see what God might be up to in them, what I can begin to do is to tune in more steadily to the frequency of love, which will only help the other person tune in more deeply to that same frequency so that we might be moving in unconditional love together so that we see and perceive one another from that place of abundant grace, forgiveness, love. All too often, we are both tuning in to frequencies that are distorting love. And so our interactions, our relationships distort love. And if we can each move closer to that frequency of Christ, if we can each tune in, attune our lives to the way of love, breathe more deeply the breath of the Spirit, we will flow more steadily in the way of grace. What comes out of our mouths will flow from hearts that have been transformed. As always on this podcast, we invite you to consider just questions of reflection that help you dig in deeper to what God is up to in your own life. And the way this section begins in chapter 8, it begins with 
um, a question, questions being raised by Jesus and the Pharisees in a conversation there basically accusing Jesus of forgiving sins as though he has the power to do so. And I wonder if we are not questioning Jesus the same these days, whether someone is capable of being forgiven. Maybe we're questioning Jesus' power to forgive ourselves. And I wonder if something that may need exploring in you is something that's constantly being explored. I'm exploring in my own life, which is what are those things that I am seeing in another person that feels to me like it's unforgivable? What is it in my own life that I experience as unforgivable? What are those places I'm not let, letting God touch? What are, the pla- what are those places in my heart that I'm not letting the Spirit breathe so that it can be transformed? So that in being transformed, what flows out of my heart past my lips is not something that separates or passes judgment or extends criticism, but rather elicits, calls forth, invites transformation. My own transformation, the transformation of another person, the transformation and regeneration of this world. What are those things that in your life you may not be letting God touch because it seems like it is forsaken. And second, if perception is experience plus expectation, what about your experience, what about your expectations are constricting how you perceive the world and others? What is it about your experiences and expectations that may not be giving you a true perception of reality? How might it be imposing something on others that isn't really there? How may it be limiting your relationships? How might it be closing you off from the grace of God at work in you and between you and others. These questions or these forms of questions, I might say, are things that I think we need to struggle with, wrestle with, ask ourselves each day. I think it's part of that daily dying, that part of taking up our cross every day Because these are the ways that enable us to seek the transformation that God wants to bring about in us. I hope that you have begun joining a small group here in Ascension. And if you have not, know that it's never too late. You can join us every Sunday morning at 9.15. This coming Sunday morning, however, that time has changed because we are gathering on Sunday morning 
for a special presentation with John Philip Newell, who is visiting us this weekend. And so this Sunday, October the 15th, we will gather at 9 a.m. in the parish hall. Everyone is welcome. Please be here early, 9 o'clock, this Sunday, October the 15th. And be sure to join us this Friday at 6.30. There, the doors will open and music will begin at 6 p.m. And we will have a wonderful time with John Philip Newell. He will be talking about his latest book, Sacred Earth, Sacred Soul. And we will have a light reception and book signing following down in the parish hall. We will gather in the church nave. And it, you do not want to miss this. It's going to be a marvelous occasion. We are so grateful to host John Philip Newell. And it is his first time being in Knoxville. And so it's a wonderful occasion for us to do this. There is a retreat on Saturday. I'm sorry that um, we are already completely full. So no more registrations there. Uh, but we will have another opportunity not only Sunday morning, but also Sunday evening to engage with John Philip Newell, who will be offering the reflection at our Celtic service at 5 p.m. this Sunday, October the 15th. It will be a fun and full weekend here in Ascension, and I hope that you will make every effort to attend Friday evening, Sunday morning, Sunday evening. And if you have already registered for the Saturday retreat, I look forward to seeing you there. As always, you can join us here in Ascension for our regular services of worship at 8 a.m. and 10.30 a.m. every Sunday. And as always, you can learn more about what's going on in Ascension by visiting us online at knoxvilleascension.org or go to spiritusknox.com to learn more about Spiritus Knox, our Center for Spiritual Practice and Learning. There are many ways to engage and to deepen your connection with God and others. Don't miss out on the many opportunities available to you right here in Ascension. We hope to see you soon.